Hey everybody, this is one of your hosts, David Rayburn, and today we are sitting down with Dr. Tyler Severance, who is... Oh, go ahead. I'll say, howdy. Nice to, uh, nice to chat with you all today. <laughs> Dr. Severance is a uh, hematology and oncology fellow here at Riley Hospital for Children, so we appreciate his time sitting down with us. No, thanks. It's, uh, it's good to be here. I've, I was uh, a valued listener way back when I was studying for boards, what seems like an eternity ago. Um, so happy to, to be back on the other side of the microphone and ready to, ready to roll. He's got some fresh knowledge and pearls to share with us. We're going to do a two-part series here. So for our first part, we're going to be talking about oncologic emergencies, um, which seems to be fairly high yield, low percentage, but high yield. Yeah. So in the big breakdown of this, they the boards loves these type of questions where if you as a general pediatrician know the next best step and that next best step can have a significant positive impact um, for these patients, this is this is high yield. And it at first it was a little frustrating because it seemed like it was narrow focus, but that narrow focus is your opportunity. So this is where you can pick up a lot of points um, for, for not a lot of mileage. Yep, and that's what we're always looking for, for the pearls. So our second part we're going to be covering, it's probably a little bit more challenging. So neoplastic disorders, looking at hematologic uh, malignancies like leukemia, uh, lymphomas, and then also discussing solid tumors. Um, so for a reference point, hematology oncology covers about 2.5% of the board, so kind of middle of the road. But hopefully with some of these pearls, there'll be easy questions for you to get. And thankfully, this is not an in-depth review of pathophys, genetics, and chemotherapy regimens like Dr. Severance will have to know for his fellowship boards. And uh, fortunately for us, that is well beyond the scope of our regular pediatric board exam. All right, well, let's go ahead and jump into this with some oncologic emergencies. You take us down whichever path you think we need to go. Yeah, so um, there's there's no real rhyme or, rhyme or reason to these, so we can just kind of knock them out one at a time. The first one that I think is worth paying attention to is is spinal cord compression. And this is something that that is surprising how easy it is to not think about this. What'll happen is is they'll give you a patient that's coming in to the to the emergency room setting and they'll and they'll give you some some minor um, you know, say lower extremity neuro, neurologic symptoms. Um, this will be the patient that's got you know this gradual onset of weakness or maybe some numbness tingling. And there are so many other avenues that this can go. But at the end of the day, you know, neurologic oncology is still a big issue. And so this is a, a good way where a couple, a couple tidbits of next best step knowledge can really be quite helpful. Specifically, um, what they'll want you to do is they're going to want you to recognize clinical findings. And so the, typically it's going to be those, those nerve symptoms that you see. And then the next thing they'll want you to know is next step in diagnosis and if the symptoms are severe, what is something you can do in the interim to bridge them to specialty care? What we typically do is once you, once you see these patients, um, the diagnostic gold standard is going to be an MRI. Typically, we, you know, these patients usually end up getting some plain films, which are inconclusive or not particularly helpful. And an MRI is going to tell you everything you need to know in crystal clear, black and white, and a little bit of gray, if you pardon a terrible pun. And it can... And that's going to be your, your next best diagnostic step if it can be obtained quickly and safely. And this is one of those that you don't want to necessarily delay the MRI and kind of putz around. If they have neuro findings that are concerned for cord, concerning for cord compression, then you want to go ahead and get the MRI, correct? Correct, absolutely. And the, this comes up in practice uh, fairly frequently when we hear that sedation can't be arranged until the next morning. And so if that's the case, then this should not be the rate-limiting step. Um, if you're truly worried about a child, then you have to uh, 
you can you can progress down the algorithm without necessarily waiting you know 12 to 24 hours for imaging. The question is is what's what would you do? And that's the 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 first answer is going to be to call for help. And a lot of these a lot of these oncologic emergencies are going to be beyond the scope of a general pediatrician to truly manage. But you need to take that first step and call in for backup. So neurosurgery is going to be the first call. However, if that's not an immediate option or neurosurgery is at a different institution, then steroids are going to be your best bet. And so in this case, some hydosteroids can help reduce inflammation, reduce the symptom burden in the short term, and bridge you to that referral space where you can get this work up, worked up and properly managed. Excellent. All right. So MRI for diagnosis, some steroids for a temporizing measure, and neurosurgeons on board for cord compression. Correct. All right. What else we got? All right. So that was the, the first one. Second one that's going to be fairly high yield for us to learn is just the simple chest mass. And it's something that we can think all the way back to, you know, first, second year of med school. And, and they'll say, oh, remember those chest masses? And they're going to give you, I think the old first aid acronym was the four T's, uh, the terrible lymphadenopathy, the thymic tumors, the teratomas, the thyroid mass. Um, in reality, the differential is, is more broad than that. But this is still something that's really important that's worth covering, covering a little bit of ground on here today. Um, the reason that these are so important is because this is this is all about protecting your, your pulmonary status, your respiratory status. So if these patients come in with respiratory distress, that means it's been smoldering for a while. And those are the ones where it's going to be bigger, it's going to be scarier. And the reason that that's the case is our ability to manage these is incredibly limited. This is absolutely not the patient that you want to sedate, knock out, relax their, vas their, their pulmonary vascular tone, and have this mass just collapse their airway. A lot of times when a chest mass, especially, especially an anterior chest mass, is present and it's causing distress at baseline, their, their muscular tone is the only thing that's keeping their airway open. So the absolute wrong answer no matter what this is, is going to do not, under any circumstance, sedate these patients without all of the proper folks and team members in place. Okay? So, again, talking about how they're going to present, this will be a patient that may have some supraclavicular lymphadenopathy. They may throw in some fatigue and weight loss and a couple of the other symptoms that we'll cover in our next lecture. But the big one that I want everybody here to watch out for is just going to be any type of respiratory distress. And it can be subtle. Um, so a little bit of increased work of breathing, um, hypoxia would be pretty terrifying. Um, those are the things that you absolutely have to watch out for. Um, and then you need to get help ASAP as possible. Um, so this is, so again, do not sedate, call in for your backup. This should be, anesthesia should be, should be front and center. And you should be very, very worried about, about these patients. I apologize to all of our listeners for Dr. Severance terrifying you with this, but definitely is something that can be terrifying. For, do we see SVC syndrome as much in kids as adults with chest masses, or is it more respiratory type symptoms that you'll see? So I'll be totally honest, the only times I've seen SVC symptom or SVC symptomatology is in board prep. So Glad we're it's, covering it. it's uh, I have not had, I've had a number of chest masses, but it's usually be, it's pretty unique to, to see that. I couldn't give you a percentage off the top of my head. Um, for listeners at home, that SVC syndrome, this is the patient that comes in that's got, you know, the significant color change from the neck up. SVC syndrome happens when you have some type of external mass or compression on the superior vena cava, and it literally just prevents blood from returning. So you get total venous congestion, um, neck up, it'll lead to the 
the color change, venous dilation, positional changes, you know, I, these, they're going to have, you know, headaches. It's, it'll be, it won't be subtle. And unfortunately, I, or I guess fortunately, I have not seen this in real life, literally only in practice questions. I would be remiss if I didn't let you share your story of your chess mass. Oh, this is a this is a great one. I appreciate you bringing it up. So the very first chess mass I ever got to evaluate, it was in our, our clinic setting as a new a new referral, and I went in as an eager young fellow, and I was armed with my workup, you know, Hodgkins, non-Hodgkins, all the things that go with it, and I'm getting the history, and he is this patient is quite proud to share that uh, relatively recently he had just adopted a stray cat or a stray kitten, so to speak, that had been sleeping not just in his bed, but on his chest, um, that had in, been scratching him to the point where there was scarring on the chest. And lo and behold, his uh, Bartonella titers were off the charts. So just because all of the oncology things are on my or the top of my differential um, does not mean common things cannot occur commonly. And so uh, do be wary of, of the other types of infections that can come here. Bartonella is a classic one because so many of the symptoms overlap with, with oncology issues. Um, you can see a couple of the fungal diseases, things like histo, mycoplasma, like all of these things can cause um, lymphadenopathy in some way, shape, or form. So just be mindful of those because of the symptom overlap. And I think the good news is, is, again, they're not trying to trick us. They just want us to know specific things. And it is common things being common, I think, for the most part when answering questions. Yeah, and, and the key is to not get too far ahead of ourselves. So, the you know, yes, we were going to want to get a tissue sample here, especially if they give you something like a supraclavicular lymph node that's, that's pretty easily accessible. And you are going to want to get that tissue, but you are not going to want to sedate these patients to do it, at least not without anesthesia and an entire cohort of specialty providers ready to, ready to help out. So just being mindful that you, you know, especially like an emergency room or at an office clinic, those are not the places to sedate them and to put them at increased risk. Very good. All right. What other emergencies do we need to be wary of? Ah, uh, it's time to earn our go with one of our bread and butters here. Okay. The classic, the no longer dreaded, febrile neutropenia. I list that on here because even though it's most commonly happens after a patient has already been diagnosed, it is absolutely an emergency. It is absolutely life-threatening to our patients, and it's absolutely something where there is concrete overwhelming, robust data that says if properly managed, we can absolutely reduce the morbidity and mortality for these patients. And that is where they love this. Um, they love these, these types of clinical scenarios where your understanding of what's going on, why they're at risk, what you need to do can directly help and save these patients' lives. Well, what do we need to do? So let's let's talk about the setup here. So the the most common scenario um, is a patient that is going to be neutropenic because they are getting systemic chemotherapy for some other treatment. Um, there are other scenarios in pediatric hematology oncology that you need to be aware of that can put you at risk. Um, that includes things like a patient with a congenital neutropenia or the immunodeficiencies. Um, it could also be a patient that has not yet been diagnosed. With their, with their cancer, say it's a, a new leukemia presentation, um, they may be functionally neutropenic or practically neutropenic, and they're all at risk. So the, the way this would present most typically on a board exam, again, you have a patient, they were just diagnosed with leukemia in the past one to five-ish months, and they've been getting systemic chemotherapy, and they present to you with a fever and they'll, you know, 102 or 39 degrees, and they're going to say, what are, what are your next best steps? Or what do you need to, what do you need to do? 
And the answer is you need to you need to grab blood cultures and you need to give antibiotics and you need to do it within the hour. And that that hour is absolutely a, a potential target answer on the boards because it's been so overwhelmingly proven important. The big thing that we worry about in these patients is sepsis, in particular sepsis with gram-negative organisms. And once your neutrophil count drops below 500, you are at increased risk for the dreaded pseudomonas. And the, the targeted therapy at that point is going to be directed towards those gram-negative rods, especially pseudomonas. So the, the typical antibiotic of choice, um, it varies a little bit by institution. Um, in practice, we used to use Zosin pretty frequently. Um, it had our good pseudomonal coverage. It covered, it covers pretty much everything that we would expect in a, in a routine case. However, the issue with Zosin is that he does not play as nicely in the proverbial, uh, antibiotic sandbox with vancomycin. And because these patients are also at risk for MRSA, um, we have, at least as our institution, have pivoted to using cefepime as first line because it can easily accept vancomycin as a teammate if we're worried about a line infection or a shunt infection or if there's mucositis. And we'll talk about these momentarily. But, and wreak less havoc on the kidneys. Correct. Yeah, that combination of, of vanc and zosin, um, although quite popular back in my day, um, I've, always <laughs> wanted to, I've always wanted to say that, it's no longer, no longer considered standard practice to use those two together um, because of that kidney injury risk. Sure. Makes sense. So I remember one of the things that was important is it was a two-part question, and it wanted to know not just the antibiotics that I would use, but the order. And this is important because as your clinical scenario evolves, you will do either cefepime as monotherapy, cefepime and FANC in combination. Sometimes you'll have a, a scenario where you'll need to use cefepime, VANC, and zosin if you want your anaerobic coverage. And with so many options, and they're all going to look enticing on that exam, you need to know which is the drug you're giving first. And in this case, it is almost always going to be your broad pseudomonas covering cefepime. And so the, the first piece of this is get your gram-negative coverage, specifically pseudomonas, and get that on board after getting your blood cultures and get that medicine delivered within an hour. If you can do that, the rest of these, the rest of this follow-up is all going to take care of itself, okay? I think that in terms of context, there's a couple other things that are key to know. Depending on their clinical scenario, they'll be at risk for certain types of germs. Uh, patients that have severe mucositis, so inflammation of their, of their mouth, their throat, their intestines, um, they're going to be at increased risk for germs passing through there. One of the ones that we see commonly is strep viridans, and so know that that's a, a pretty common a pretty common germ when patients are, are experiencing significant inflammation in their mouth. Um, we talked about pseudomonas in depth. The other ones that we tend to see more, you'll see a lot of lower GI bugs, um, stool-related pathogens. I feel like that's, those are much more common in patients that are, say, getting um, high-dose methotrexate therapy and have, have severe lower, lower GI tract disease. And any time you're at risk for some of these germs, so with mucositis or with uh, an internal shunt place, these are going to be the patients that don't just get cefepime. They're going to get cefepime and vanc in combination. And again, our institution's policy is if you're worried about this, if you're having that conversation, just throw Flagyl on there as well. But I recognize that other institutions, 
may not necessarily follow that practice. And since it's debated amongst institutions, it will not be debated on your board exam. So you can you can scratch that piece out, but just know that in the back of your mind for practice that that may be something that you do. Well, and sometimes we get into the clinical side of things here. We you, Our focus is clearly board prep, but we can't be uh, completely focused on that without having some clinical. So if we have somebody come in that is febrile, mm-hmm. we suspect they're neutropenic for whatever reason, they have a reason to be neutropenic, then we're going to get some labs, some blood cultures, mm-hmm. and we're going to get antibiotics on board that first hour. Correct. Probably something broad spectrum like cefepime to cover for pseudomonas. Correct. Excellent. Um, in terms of definitions, um, I've been asked this a couple times by by uh, residents and, and students alike, um, what do we consider neutropenia? And for us, our standard is always an absolute neutrophil count less than 500. And it's not just neutrophils. We lump bands in there too. So take your total white blood cell count, find your percentage of neutrophils and bands, add them together, that percentage times your total. Um, If that number is less than 500, that hits our threshold for neutropenia. Also with the little asterisk, if they have confused stupid neutrophils, so say they have likely new diagnosis of leukemia or say they just got a stem cell transplant, we'll just say those neutrophils are, uh, they're not on their A game quite yet. So we consider them stupid neutrophils and we would treat those as functionally neutropenic and that would be the exact same way regardless of what that number is other things just in case it's on your just so it's on your contextual radar um, for a lot of our patients with gram negative bacteremia these are going to be the the patients that present with with shock you know the hypotension the severe fevers the um, they're going to look terrible Um, it is not uncommon for them to get worse after that first dose of antibiotics so when they get that antibiotic, if you're really truly killing, you know, gram-negative rods, you would expect that continued, that continued surge response. And so these are patients that are going to dip probably a little bit before they start on their recovery. Perfect. Yep. Just something to be prepared for, especially in the emergency or critical care arenas. Absolutely. So. All right. What, any other emergencies we need to cover? Oh, yeah. Oh, here we go. All right. It's time to put on our, uh, our nephrology hats here. Oh, no. How do you feel about tumor lysis syndrome? I just said, oh, no. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, so, so tumor lysis syndrome, the, uh, the, the, the process of turning over so many cells that their gunk, their debris, the byproducts, the internal guts of these cells, they start to build up to toxic levels. This is a super high yield one. In fact, if I could go back in time, I probably would even put this one first at this podcast because of how high yield it is. The reason that that's the case is because this is one of those classic scenarios that overlaps with other specialties. And so here you have a primarily oncologic concept that overlaps with electrolyte management, with kidney disease, with ICU critical care management. There's a lot of, and there's all with this physiologic background to it. And so they really like questions like that. So let's build our typical patient here. So tumor lysis syndrome is when you have patients with, usually it's with a leukemia or lymphoma, and it's usually at the beginning of treatment, and you've just given them chemotherapy, and you're killing off these cells pretty darn quick. And as you're killing them, the guts of these cells, things like potassium, phosphorus, uric acid, they all start to build up in the bloodstream. And no matter how much we try, sometimes the kidneys just can't keep up. And so what happens is, is you, there's an electrolyte pattern that you'll start to see. There, those metabolic derangements, derangements then lead to symptoms that present, which you, 
as the newly board certified pediatrician need to be able to go in and conquer. Sound good so far? That does sound good. All right. See, this wasn't a reason to say, oh, no. This was a – let's get excited. The kidney's right. a great I'm, organ. I'm excited. So the typical things that you're going to see with these patients, these are going to be typically a patient with leukemia that's got a really high white count at presentation. You know, the first time I saw this, the patient had a white count of 700,000 when they presented. And sure enough, with that first dose, we were tearing apart these cells, and the potassium took off. The specific electrolyte abnormalities that you're going to see, you're going to see your potassium start to rise. You're going to see your uric acid shoot up. In general, you'll see a hyperphosphatemia, so your phos will go up. And as that happens, it will precipitate out your calcium, and so you'll start to see hypocalcemia. So that's your common, your common pathway. So the, hyperkalemia, increased uric acid, hyperphosphatemia, and with that, hypocalcemia. Correct. Perfect. Okay. The, the typical symptoms can be all across those electrolyte derangements. The ones that I remember from my board prep in particular, hint, hint, wink, wink, is that is the, you'll get cardiac changes. So you'll have a patient that's, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so was diagnosed with leukemia two days ago. He started treatment. He did great. You know, now he hasn't peed for some reason in 24 hours. And all of a sudden you notice peak T waves on his rhythm strip. And you're... And your, your heart is going to sink for a moment, and you're going to say, Oh, no. Oh. Yeah, okay, now, now would be the appropriate, oh, no. Here, you're, uh, I say, you have a good background for these things. What would you do if you saw a patient with hyperkalemia? Um, well, first things first, I'm going to give them calcium. As long as their EKG correlates. Yeah. If it's just the lab, I'm going to repeat it. But Fair. If saying it's real potassium, I'm going to give them calcium to stabilize the cardiac membrane. And then I'm going to work on putting the the potassium back into cells until the nephrologist can get on board to help pull it off with dialysis. Correct. Your, your colleague will be, we happy to call the nephrology team and the ICU team as you, as you get them ready. I, have you guys gone through the analogy here, the C big K drop? It's one of my all time favorites. I think we may have talked about that in another one, but why don't you refresh us? All right. So C big K drops, C the high potassium go down. The C stands for the calcium gluconate. I'm, I'm glad you got that on board. Um, the BIG, um, the beta agonists, and the insulin glucose combo can help push some of that potassium back into cells. K, the KX light, that's usually more of a longer term intervention, but your, your D is going to be the is dialysis and diuresis. A lot of times we're pushing fluids, fluids after fluids after fluids in these patients to really help, help keep the kidneys hydrated. If I may make a plug for my favorite saying from Captain Planet, the solution to pollution is dilution. So these are patients that are going to just have a ton of fluid already on board, and despite this, they're still not keeping up with clearing it. And so that's where we often have to give dialysis to help out and get them to the ICU right away. I also want to spend some time talking about uric acid. And this is, this is an important one. A lot of our patients are going to be, they're going to be on allopurinol when we, when we start the chemo process as sort of a protective mechanism to protect against this hyperuricemia or increased uric acid. If it starts to really take off, these are the patients where we're going to, we're going to bite the bullet and we're going to give them rasburicase. It's, it's fairly uncommon, but if you need it, you need it. And again, these are your, your wise for one of your first calls to be with the nephrology team. Um, because ultimately we're going to need their help in, in navigating this. Again, this is something where you're, they'll, 
I guess when they give you this question, it'll probably be fairly subtle. They'll give you the right context, which will push you in the direction, but the clinical symptoms and signs that they give you can be can be less obvious. So just be aware of the patient that's not making urine, the rhythm strip changes, the the other signs of electrolyte disturbance, um, just so that you're so it's on your radar. And a new cancer diagnosis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can, in fact, see this as a, uh, you can even see this in patients that have not yet been diagnosed. So Burkitt's lymphoma is the classic one where it's, this mass is growing so fast, the cells are dying so quickly, even though you haven't even started giving chemo yet, that they present with all of these findings. All right. uh, and it, it can be pretty scary. Wonderful. What else we got? All right. So the last one, this is, to me, this is way less exciting, but I'm going to throw it in here because it may be worth a point here or there towards the end of your exam. So from a neuro-oncology standpoint, these can present as an emergency. Neuro-oncology is a vast field, and I, fingers crossed that you guys cover this in another lecture that is not in my wheelhouse. Um, I, when I hear neuro-oncology, I say, oh no. For a new diagnosis, though, a lot of these patients can present with the rapid onset of neurologic symptoms, and that can in and of itself be an emergency, especially if you're not at a facility that has the, the resources of a board-certified pediatric neurosurgeon and all of, all of, their, all of their colleagues. Those are a hot commodity. <laughs> so, I've, so I've heard. What will happen is, is this is the patient that's going to present with signs or symptoms of increased ICP. So this is going to be your headaches, your vision changes, your nausea, your vomiting. And this can be subtle. They will probably try to distract you with something else, uh, maybe a, a viral gastro or something along those lines. And you will be astute and you won't fall for it. And you're going to get your imaging, whether it be a CT scan or an MRI. And you'll see these this, this mass. Though they might even give you a, a layup and give you a little bit of extra inflammation surrounding that tissue. You are never wrong to give these kids steroids. If it's, if it's truly a neuro, neuro-oncologic process, then the steroids can help reduce the inflammation and swelling around that mass, and it can buy you time to get them to a specialist. We um, did touch base a little bit with Dr. Jackman on the headache lecture about secondary headaches. So if you want to get a little bit more in-depth with uh, causes of secondary headaches and increased ICP, go back and listen to that one as well. And, and actually, I'm going to um, addend one of my comments that I just made. When I said you're never wrong to give steroids, <laughs> so, so I would be a bad hematologist-oncologist here if I didn't just comment briefly. If there is any concern for a hematologic malignancy, you should at least grab a CBC to make sure we're not missing an underlying leukemia that perhaps has progressed to chloromas or a bleed, which is then causing this ICP. As an example, in another one of the patients I saw early in my career, she presented with a very high white blood cell count, which led to these masses in the brain, which were just clumps of leukemia cells. And she ultimately got steroids very quickly, but we had done a couple extra diagnostic steps. And so when in doubt, I would recommend getting at least a CBC before, before giving steroids. But again, an emergency is an emergency. You always have to treat the patient in front of you, and we can always build our diagnosis backwards. So I just had to clarify that although we have a great, a, a great uh, love-hate relationship with steroids, just, just know that they're, they, in the back of our minds, we always want to be thinking about the what-ifs. And then we just tie a little bit more clinical into board prep there. So. Oh, look what we did there. But I think those are some great pearls. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to cover in this section, Dr. Severance? No, I, I would just stress and emphasize that 
that knowing your next best step, it's going to be what's safest. And so these, these questions, you're a lot of times you'll read them and you'll know, you'll have a strong suspicion of what's going on and your instinct will be correct. And so the key is just reasoning through what is my next best step. And if the patient's life is at risk, which it is, it's usually how do I best serve this patient and then get them to the, the specialist that can help take care of them. All right. Very good. Well, you guys tune in for our next segment on hematologic uh, malignancies and leukemias, lymphomas, we'll, and break down a little bit more into that. Um, but again, thank you, Dr. Severance. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.